Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Okay, so today is part one of what I hope will be several parts, um, what I'm calling the Black Producers Reality and Reality. Uh, Today I talked to four amazing producers. I'll introduce them in a moment. We had such an amazing wide-ranging conversation about so much, just a few things to whet your appetite, to being your whole self at work and what that means, why inclusion matters for people making content and greenlighting it, how Black culture needs to be better represented in unscripted television, what can be done at networks and production companies to make sure that things shift in terms of hiring and promoting, what we can do as an industry going forward to make things better and more inclusive. We get into so much of it. The producers also talk about some of their personal experiences, which was just incredibly eye-opening and very profound for me. So I'm going to get it So I'm going to get into the intros now of each of the producers, and then we will start our conversation. So first is Tony Judkins. She is an award-winning programming and production executive. She spent a big bulk of her career producing for VH1 and then went to the network side as EVP of original programming and production for TV1. Tony transformed the programming slate there, which resulted in 100% improvement in the ratings. Tony's been recognized as one of the most powerful women in cable by Cable Facts and one of the 100 most influential minorities in cable. Sean Rankin's been producing and directing on some of America's most memorable reality television series for over 20 years. He started out on MTV's Real World and Road Rules, and now his credit list includes over 50 seasons of series and specials for both cable and broadcast TV. Everything from Making the Band to I Want to Work for Diddy to College Hill, The Rap Game, Married to Medicine, L.A., He helped create the hit show Basketball Wise, which he EP'd for 11 seasons and the spinoff Basketball Wise LA. And right now he's the executive producer showrunner on OWN's Eon La Fix My Life. And side note, Sean and I did a almost hour long podcast last year, which we really went through some of his greatest hits and had a really good conversation if you want to go back and listen to that. And finally, Brie Frank. Brie is an accomplished television executive with over 20 years of production experience. She's produced 275 hours of unscripted TV, including MTV's Room Raiders, TLC Makeover Story, and ABC's Wife Swap. She's worked in production management for years in New York, and then two years ago took a leap of faith and moved her entire family to LA. And she's now VP of Physical Production for Unscripted for Reese Witherspoon's company, Hello Sunshine. She's also the founder of Hue You Know, H-U-E, which is an online production resource group for professionals of color, which has 11,000 members and counting around the nation. Anthony Sylvester has been directing and producing TV for the last 17 years. He first started out as a set dresser on some feature films like The Devil Wears Prada and Winter Passing before he ended up on NBC's The Apprentice. He went on to produce Wife Swap, I Want to Work for Diddy, Girl Cruise, Meet the Peets, and Hollywood Divas, amongst many other shows. He's a sought-after showrunner, executive producer, and unscripted, and he is now EPing Bravo's hit show, The Real Housewives of Atlanta. So please listen and share this podcast with everyone you know. I really wanted to get this conversation out in the open and talk about what's going on, what's been going on, but also really how we can change things. So I hope you enjoy my podcast with these four wonderful people. Okay, so here I am with the four, with the fabulous four, some of whom know know each other, some of whom don't. So everyone say hello. 
Hi, guys. Thank you all so much for doing this. I'm really excited to have you. I feel like when I typically interview black producers on the podcast, it's kind of something that I always want to talk about. And then I'm never sure if I should be talking about it. So I kind of don't talk about it. And I think maybe this is the entire problem is that we just don't talk about any of these issues. So I'm really excited that we're here to talk about it. And I want to hear from all of you who probably have a lot of similar experiences and all a lot of different experiences. So we're, we're going to get into it. I want to start just really generally talking about the last few weeks. And there's been some unbelievable stuff going on in our culture and just how it's affected each of you personally and what it's brought up for you personally. We can start with Sean. It's been, it's been a really heavy couple of weeks. I mean, it's oddly, it shouldn't feel any heavier than usual because this has been going on for so long that it's just sort of become normal. But I think to actually feel the momentum behind the reaction to what we've seen in the last couple of weeks has been something that's actually sort of made my heart almost want to burst because you feel like there is support. You feel like your voice is finally heard. And when it's, when it's embraced by a larger group, you feel like the message won't get lost. And so I think it's been a roller coaster for the last couple of weeks of like, we're having this difficult conversation. We're seeing these horrific things, but you're, you're enlightened and heartened by the fact that you're seeing that there are people behind you taking up the mantle to help further your cause. So it's been, it's been a ride. It's been a ride. Sure. How about you, Bray? Um, I think for me, it's been um, quite overwhelming. I found myself like angry and then emotional and then like frustrated and then like wanting to try to figure out like how I can be a productive part of the change. Um, I've certainly had many conversations with people who, um, you know, like white colleagues that are like just waking up to black pain, which is like, you know, while you're like thankful for the visibility, you're also like frustrated that it took something like so egregious um, and a, a specific camera angle for the belief to exist that um, the pain of black people is like quite real and how people just like didn't understand. And maybe I didn't understand until um, that Monday, like we had that week and then the weekend happened and I found myself like crying and frustrated. I went to work and I realized um, that I was about to check my blackness at the, the door and not take it into me with work. And then I work at a company that fully embraces all of me and I'd never had it before. And it made me very emotional. That's hello sunshine, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you said it embraces all of you, what do you mean by that? I'm just, a I've never worked in a space where I've been able to bring my entire self um, it's to be a little complicit, right? Especially like 20 years ago or 10 years ago, like you find that in order, or kind of move up the ladder, quite a bit of silence for you. And I think that is the, the thing that can be said for any person or any um, genre that is othered, right? That if you want to be able to move up, that you can't be too black. You can't be too spoken out because it's just not welcome. And people don't want to say it because there is so much... Um, politeness and niceness circled around um, race, that that is the thing that sits inside the room. And so you're unable to display your, your full humanity, right? You're unable as um, 
you know, to be in production is to pretend if you have kids that you're not a mother, if you're a woman that you're not a woman, if you're black that you're not really black, like you're just like, I'm just a production person, which nothing is further than the truth, right? And so you just want to be able to be in a space that recognizes you fully. And I am, it had never really dawned on me until I'd started my meeting um, with my team who was actually like quite diverse and inclusive. And it's a part of like the mission of the company that all of me was welcome, including my pain. Wow. That that's big. Tony, you and I worked together at VH1 for several years. You were there a lot longer yeah. than me. Did yeah. you have that experience like Brie, where you felt like you weren't able to bring all of Tony to the table? Absolutely. And then some, but Aliza, if you know me and you do, uh, I could only suppress uh, the full Tony, which <laughs> for, for so long. And, uh, but absolutely, I felt that way, but I will say this. And if you remember, it was when I push would push back or would bring that, that part of myself to the room that, you know, we, I think we were pretty, um, we were in a good position in that we had people that were open, you know, our bosses at the time being Michael Hirshhorn or Shelly Tato, they were really open to hearing different things. But I always felt that part of me, like, don't, don't say this, or don't be too black or don't be too offensive or don't be too aggressive in your point or, but, you know, I found that when I, I had to do those things, I stepped up. Um, oftentimes it was heard and sometimes it was acted upon. Uh, I remember being able to get, even to get uh, specials greenlit uh, because I someone just hadn't thought of the point of view that uh, I would bring to our bosses or bring to the room. But there are plenty of times, more often than not, I was unsuccessful because I didn't speak up, but I always felt that silent, sometimes pushback or even silent wish from others that I interpreted out almost as a, a silent wish mothers that don't, don't start, <laughs> you know, don't, don't, the boat. <laughs> don't start, don't rock the boat, don't bring up the black angle, don't bring up the black part of it. And therefore don't be all of you. And I had to suppress that, but I will say that it was, um, it was short-lived because I would always, for better or for worse, I would always end up being being the full me. And then I would, you know, eventually I would go into another network, TV One, where I was t- completely allowed to be my full self. But then there was a different issue, right? There was a different issue in, in being fair and being balanced and, and you know, trying to um, speak to an entire community in a way that, you know, we're not a monolith, right? So we would speak about our challenges, speak about our pain, but in a way that would work and that would get ratings, that would satisfy everyone's needs, so to speak. So there was always different challenges. But what I didn't feel in that environment was that I had to suppress any part of myself. Anthony, how about you? Um, I mean, I, I would say that this week, actually, the, the last couple of weeks have been, like Bree said, an emotional roller coaster. Um, I think that, you know, I go from waves of frustration and waves of, you know, of anger to waves of hopefulness. Um, I think that for, for me, it was, it's been a little touching because I have a two and a half year old son. So um, for me, you know, I, I've experienced a lot of the, a lot of racism, a lot of police brutality. I've experienced that in New York. I've seen it firsthand. I've experienced it firsthand. I've seen these things. I've grown up with these things. So for, and, I, and Brie and I have had this conversation where at 40, I'm 43 right now, at 43, you become desensitized and numb to it. 
right? You become, you hear a story of another attack of police brutality and not to say that you're upset and uh, not to say that you're not angry and not upset about it, but you've heard these stories, stories so many times that you become numb to it. It just becomes another story. I think for me this time, it took on a different weight because yes, this is another version of police brutality that we all have seen and, and, you know, you're watching it firsthand, but how do I explain that to a two and a half year old? How do I explain that to a two-year-old that has no knowledge of what's really going on in the world that just wants to play play in his playpen or play in his his you know play his 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 go-go gadget toy or Paw Patrol toy? How do I how do you rip that innocence away from a young boy knowing that he is going to have to experience that, knowing that he is going to go into this world and we are going to have a have to have a conversation of if you get stopped by police, this is what you have to do. If, if you are in a situation, this is what you have to do to get home. So for, for me, it's been, uh, I don't know, an emotional roller coaster, just in the sense of, I have to explain that to a young black male that has no idea what it is. And it's not even if it's when. Right. And at least that's one thing for me. And I don't know if, if everyone's in Los Angeles, but, I'm a little bit older, so I, um, I'm i very hard. And I think someone said this earlier before. I'm very hard to see that there's so many young people coming out to, to speak up. And one of the things that after, you know, the first week, when I saw the, vi- the video of George Floyd, I couldn't sleep. And I literally, I cried and cried myself to sleep. And I was like, okay, maybe I'm old, not overreacting, but I'm like, I need to disconnect from everything. So for like about three days, I, you know, no news, no podcast, nothing. And then when I tuned back in, you know, everything was, you know, people were taken to the streets and it became really big. And I, what I realized is like, oh, you know, I've been seeing these types of things. They would spur up, there would be some type of backlash, there would be some type of a protest, uh, but then it would die down really quickly. Mm-hmm. But when I saw, I live in Los Angeles, and, you know, uh, when I saw, like, stores that I visit, you know, I couldn't go to them because they'd either been broken into or or people, you know, people were protesting, or I was driving down Santa Monica Boulevard two Saturdays ago, and every young protester that I saw was a white person, a young white person carrying Black Lives Matter signs, every building. I was like, this is different. Mm -hmm. And I can't express that enough. I don't know how long it will last and I don't know how much will happen, but I I feel like we've seen it's lasted longer than we normally see. Mm -hmm. And and things have changed in a more rapid pace. They're not, you know, they're not huge sweeping changes, but there are changes. I just want to say that I'm very heartened because I can see it and I can feel it that this is different. I, I totally agree with you because initially I was thinking it from the perspective of like the Philando Castile case, right? We're in Minneapolis again. They convicted a black cop when he accidentally shot a white woman who came out and startled him when he was investigating a call for a robbery, right? And then you see someone get shot in a car live on Facebook in a panic shooting and the guy walks. So in this instance, I'm like, here we go again. This is going to be yet another situation where the cop was scared. He had to make a life-threatening decision and he reacted and it was just going to go away. But to see the fact that people were just tired and they can't take it anymore and they were able to voice that in a way that garnered support from around the globe. I mean, we're we're looking at, you know, cross-continental divides. We're talking like, you know, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, you know, Sweden, people are marching on behalf of some man in 
Minneapolis, Minnesota, yeah. that unfortunately lost his life. But that's that's a universal problem that's actually been identified. And this is the first time I've seen it spill beyond the borders of not only the state or the city, but the country and for the voice to be as loud. So I am with you 100% in terms of feeling like this is so different. I, uh, this is Anthony. I, I, I agree with Tony and I agree with you, Sean, that I do feel that this is different. My one concern and my one fan, I've expressed this with Bree as well, is that, you know, the spotlight is on right now. And I feel like everyone is aware of what's going on. We see the protests and I just want that. I want the awareness to continue when the spotlight turns off because everybody knows the spotlight is going to turn off at some point in time It's going to turn off, whether it be a month from now, whether it be two months from now or three months from now, when, when we get into this, this, this space of the general election and it's all about politics, the spotlight of police brutality is going to fade as it has faded many times in the past as we have protested many times in the past. I do feel that this is different because it's more, it's, it's, everybody is included. I feel like the inclusion of everybody is different this time than it has been in the past, but I just want the, the pressure, so to speak, or the pressure for change to continue when, when it's not covered on CNN on a daily basis, when it's not the breaking news on ABC News. Yeah, I think that's the whole point because the reason that this started was because of police brutality and the outrage over George Floyd and then, of course, everything else. But what this awoke was this consciousness like we've been talking about, which is like, holy shit, am I racist? What's going on? Like, where are my black friends? What's going on in my workplace? So that's sort of the exciting part in my mind, which is that we can go beyond what is a huge issue and, you know, in law enforcement. I mean, it's beyond something that's need to change forever. But we can look at what's happening in all of these other areas and say, how can I do better? And what's actually going on here and how does it trickle into those other areas? And obviously entertainment is a huge part of it. Like if you look at what's been going on just in unscripted in the last week with canceling live PD and canceling cops, this affects every area and you know, life imitating art, art imitating life. So I think it's very relevant in terms of our conversation now about our industry in particular, you know, what, what is it like to be a person of color working in unscripted where you're definitely the minority, at least on most companies, most sets that I've been on? So what is it like to be that person, you know, and, and over the course of your career, how has that changed if it has at all? I mean, it's, it's, it, this is Brie. I think that what it's asking for you to be when you are the only one, which has certainly been, um, my experience for much of my um, professional career, I am usually in terms of staff, um, the only woman of color on um, staff in some of the spaces that I have been in is that it kind of puts a lot of weight on you to be the advocate when things are wrong. I've worked um, at companies to try to name um, an episode, the Aunt Jemima episode, because a black woman <laughs> had a scar. Like, and, and you're just like, are, are you kidding me? Like, I, ha I have to say it. I have to say that this is not okay. And I think that um, what's been interesting for me as I like have conversations with colleagues is they do not understand the relevance of what their own personal lives 
um, have to do with, with their work lives, right? And so if you are home and you are, and your friends and the people that you break bread with and you share space with, if that is not a diverse and inclusive place, you cannot expect them to go to work and for we are the world to queue up as soon as you come in and that the employer, it will be on the onus of their employers to make the place diverse and inclusive. I think that we all get in a good place where we are um, diverse and inclusive in all our lives for all of the people that are marginalized, whether or not it's accessibility, it's about knowing more people of color, it's about understanding the LGBTQIA plus world. Like when we have those people invited into our world, when we go to a place where they are not represented, it sits out like a sore, a sore thumb and you're offended. You are offended of the lack of representation, not just of yourself of, and of others. And so what I would like is for colleagues that are now alert and who who feel bad and feel guilt like I I learned from someone and I don't know who said it like there is no growth in shame right so I don't need your shame and I don't need your guilt I need you to be aware and to make changes and that changes start at home so then if you can change your life at home and be a safe enough person to be invited into the spaces of marginalized folks especially and specifically because that's what we're talking about black people that when you go to work and someone makes a quip and someone makes a joke and someone tries to create content that feels like it is um, stereotypical or it is tokenizing black people, that you will not allow it, not because you think that it is wrong, because it truly offends you. And until you can get inside that space, we got a lot of work to do. And even, this is Tony, even completely agreeing with what Brie, I'm just thinking about an experience that I had when, this was years ago and things are a bit different today, where I was in an environment where there was con there was a you know reality show, uh, non-scripted reality show, competition show, primarily African-Americans. And many of the things that Brie brought up, I brought to my boss and my boss basically, you know, at that time, the retort was, well, the African-American viewers want this, right? They want to see this. These people are participating in this. And my, my pushback at the time, which I don't think really landed was, that doesn't mean you still you have to make it. Yes. You know, that doesn't, you know, people may want to watch, you know, people may not want to watch porn on their computers. They may, may want to see it on ABC. ABC's not going to, it's not going to make it, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we would, we would get the, you know, people are participating. People are, the rate, look at, look at the ratings. We have to make, you know, the, the, the ratchet TV because it's what, it's what's working. And in many ways, shows like Live PD and Cops kind of feel that, kind of feel the same type of, of need and that, that, that want in some degree, and they're, they're still being made. So yes, I'm glad that at this moment, those types of shows have been taken off the air. But, and I think, you know, to Anthony's point, like you want to make sure that it continues, you know, I fear that three, six, seven months down the road, they'll quietly come back. Right. Mm -hmm. And it'll be, it, I, I, like we said, we're all heartened, but I think we need to keep an eye out and maybe try, try to find other things to fill those voids, right? So while you have this moment where shows like that are off the air, maybe the onus becomes on us to say, can we create something that fills that void that's better, that better represents us, that better represents everyone's experience so we don't have to resort back to, you know, even if something is a ratings juggernaut, we resort back to putting the same old, same old back on the air. 
it's the school shooting effect. It's like, oh, let's take it yeah. up there right now. It's not the time. And then right. the violence creeps back into our culture. And then something right. else happens and it's like, oh, not right now. And it's like, no, let's forever be woke. Let's forever right. be cognizant of the pain of others and to not put a price on humanity, right? To say that it is not okay because it is not okay and not because of the reaction of it being viewed as not okay, which right. is a very different space. And, I, and I, let me, my last point is about something that Bree said. I think that it, the inclusive and a diverse, creating diverse and inclusive um, experiences does begin at home because when you people start having more diverse friends and inclusive friends, and then they, they see representations of these types of people out there that don't resonate with who they know their friends and colleagues to be, then they'll push back on the creating of, the creation of content that is in stark contrast to the reality of who these types of people really are. Agreed, agreed. I, you know, I, I would say, this is Anthony. Um, I think that for me, when I, when I first started in production, production was not as, urban culture was not as celebrated or wasn't as talked about or it wasn't as viewed on television as it is right now. I, I came into the, and Brie knows this, from the ABC wife swaps and the, that, that genre of television where there wasn't as, men, as much urban content on television as there is right now, right? And I think that, and I, I love the fact that the, the culture is being expressed on television, but I think that if you are going to express the culture on television, then you have to somewhat understand the culture to a degree, right? And I say that in the sense of, I've been in many meetings before on, on an urban reality show where I've said, oh, X, Y, and Z, and I've been either chastised or I have been told, no, well, that's not great for, that's not great for the television network, but I'm like, but it's the, you're talking about a culture. It's not about the network. We are, we, are, we are showing false information about a culture because you feel it is good for a television show. It is not good for the movement forward of the minority or the black person on the show. You are doing, so I think that there has to be the conversation of, okay, if we are going to pinpoint and focus on the urban, the urban culture, then there has to be some inclusion in that. There has to be some, okay, well, let me... I may not I, like. I, I can't say that I know the Irish, uh, I, an Irish culture. If I was doing an Irish reality television show, I don't know the Irish culture. I would expect someone that is Irish to give me a heads up of saying, "Hey, this is yes, this is we actually do that or we don't do that." So I think the same thing has to be said for the urban market, and I think it's getting better. But it, uh, you, 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 I haven't experienced it to the point where it needs to be. Anthony, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit with that because, sure. you know, you produce uh, Housewives of Atlanta for mm -hmm. a predominantly white network. And by by that, I mean, I don't know any black executives there. There might be any. Yeah. There might be some, sure. but I don't know. There's a few. Okay. I tried, Elisa. I tried. <laughs> <laughs> and for a, a production company that is run by white people. So have you had that experience particularly with that show where that's an all black cast now where you've wanted to put something in the air or capture something that's going on where you've gotten pushback because they really just don't get it? Um, not particularly with that show. I would say that I definitely push back of what you can and can't do. And unfortunately housewives is such a, there's such a model for that show that sometimes they don't want to go outside of that outside of the, the construct of what Housewives is. So like you can try and push the envelope, but they'll say, oh, well that, we really don't do that in this brand. 
right? Um, or that goes further than the brand of, of what Housewives is. So sometimes that makes that conversation difficult, you know? But I've also, you know, to, to your point, um, I've also been on literally first season shows where it is, I'll give you a perfect example, where it is about hip hop music. And I've had execs tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about. And if anybody's ever met me, I am a hip hop head. <laughs> so like, there's, there's no way you can tell me anything about the hip hop culture that I would be like, oh, okay, you're right. But I've had execs tell me, literally tell me um, a certain group was from a certain area where I was like, that is completely false and argued with me about it. And I'm like, no, they're from Queens. And I was like, they're not, <laughs> you know? So wow. like, I, I think that, you know, I've, I've had it both, I've had it both ways where, um, you know, I think that the conversation just needs to be had. I feel like on both sides at the content, especially when you're talking about a show and you're capturing the culture of, or you're capturing certain people, the conversation has to be had in, are we, one, are we doing this responsibly? Are we, are we doing stuff to push the conversation forward? Um, the culture and the conversation amongst everybody, not just a minority group, the conversation, black, Latino, white, everybody. Are we doing stuff to push the conversation forward? And I feel like until we start having those real conversations on real shows, it will be, you know. And are we experts in this field, right? Because a lot of times, you know, to have someone dictate back to you with black culture is it's like, wait, what? Right? Like you should you should give grace, right? You should allow people who are of that culture, right? And get more than one vote because you might get a Ben Carson in there to define <laughs> for you what it is true for them and not tell them what is real, like, you know what I mean? Like what is real for them or what is the real experience? And I think that's so interesting to me, like when someone's like, well, black people don't do that. And I'm like, tell me more. Yes. <laughs> like that's the, that's the thing I'm saying. Right. Have the conversation. And I'm, I, and I'm not saying that one person is a spokesperson for the entire black culture or the entire yeah. culture. That's not the, that's not the case, but through conversation, you can figure out, okay, well, this is where we need to go. That uh, it always amazes me when I get told, like Bree said, no, we don't do that. Or, you know, you really don't do that. Or, like you're, you're telling me about mm-hmm. myself, which is amazing <laughs> to me, you know, and I don't and think that to, to dictate that it must resonate with you in order for it to be real is to basically create a white lens that, you know, that um, dilutes what it is, the, the, the black experience. Right. So like yeah. if you were saying that unless it resonates with you, unless yeah. you understand it, then it is, you know, then it's not real. Then what are you truly saying? Like you, it's not what I'm saying. You need to think about what you're saying, because what you're saying is that unless you can um, wrap your arms around it, then it's not real. And that is exactly why we can get to it. That is the same, that, that methodology is the same line that puts George, George Floyd on the street with someone's knee on their neck. Like, it's the same mentality. It, it may not be as dangerous and as violent, but it's still the same mindset of letting, like, um, essentially, like, white supremacy, like, lead your thinking. Right. Even and this, this is malicious, right? This is Tony, and it points out, Brie, that what inclusion really means is learning. Yeah. Inclu- inclusion, to some degrees, means silence, and it means learning. I've all, I've had Every experience you guys are talking about here, I've had. But one of the most frustrating is when someone's telling you, you know, Anthony, you're a hip hop head. Sean, Bree, you guys are all experts in what you're doing. I was an expert. I'm an expert at what I do. But I've often been told, no, that does either. Our audience, one, which is highly offensive, our audience doesn't 
want to see that, which means you're saying that you are unwilling to give your audience what you believe is the expectation that they have of what this culture is, right? Not what is authentically the culture. And you're not being able to buy into that authenticity is a reflection of your lack of knowledge and your lack of willingness to say, hey, there's something that I don't know about this. I've been told plenty of times, well, that's not really what the Black audience is, or that's not really how Black people are. You know what? It is. When I've, I've, I've been in situations where I've pre- tried to present something, and I, I remember the phrase that would always be used. I would present something and someone, uh, you know, and a white executive would say to me, well, that's too upscale for our audience, or it's too upscale for you know, this, this particular person in this particular environment, our audience are, these people are more downscale and say that type of thing with a straight face, with not Mm -hmm. any thought that it could possibly be offensive and, and you would be expected to fall in line. So I can see that those things hopefully are changing, but to go back to your, your original question, Elise, I think the key comes into hiring people within the production companies that are diverse not just the showrunners that go out to execute the, the shows that come on for three months, six months, whatever. But yes, it may be a white-owned production company, but who do you have within your production company that really knows this audience, that reflects this audience? And from a, from the network side, whenever we would greenlight shows over at TV One, I would really seek to see if the production company would reach out and try and bring in showrunners and producers that really reflected the sensibilities of the content. But it would have been better at that time if there were either more Black-owned production companies or production companies that had decision makers that were diverse. And I think that that is one of the places, aside from the people that are the boots on the ground making the shows happen, that are making those decisions in the room. This, this is Sean real quick. I mean, I, I completely hear Anthony's point where you're saying that the conversations are very difficult to have. Absolutely. I mean, there's been so many different creative pitch meetings, and I think we've all experienced this where you're bringing up a point and you want to see a positive counterbalance. We're, we're talking urban culture. We're talking African-American culture. We're talking, you know, the facets that we are basically allowed to see in this programming. Now, when you want to see another positive side of things like education or family interaction or things like that, and you get the response of, Oh, that's, that's not what our audience likes, or they don't respond to that, or that's not what these people do every day. And you have to stand there almost dumbfounded sometimes, like, then how do you feel like these people exist? Like, I don't understand where these conversations that you're having in your head are actually validated. Like, I had a show recently that I have to applaud the network executive because she was completely an advocate for it. I actually had to fight aside from, you know, a few other people about following an HBCU storyline and showing positivity of education and seeing people being uh, given accolades for their academic achievements and where they've achieved in their careers and making sure that that trip took place so that we could see that there are other things present in black women's lives and throwing drinks and, and you know throwing shade at each other. Yes. It was important for me to see where their education got them, how they got to be where they are. You're a doctor. This is how you got to be there. Showing the educational institutions that are important to our culture, that have given us a place to, to learn and to grow when we weren't given opportunities elsewhere, and highlighting those things and showing people that are of our community that these opportunities are out there if they've not have, they may have not been exposed to those sort of things. But we're not always given those avenues to show that side of culture because what comes in and brings in ad sales is the, the numbers behind these shows where it's fighting and screaming and yelling and shooting. Like I was reading something yesterday about 
uh, a show on, on, on VH1 where, you know, there was a gun on set. But these are the shows that keep getting, you know, yes. greenlit and greenlit and greenlit because they bring in some numbers. But what about other shows? You know, we do have other things going on, but we fill one slot and that's all they seem to want to continue to reinvest in. And I just don't think that's culturally fair. Yeah, you know, we can make log cabins. Like, why can't we have a half hour dedicated <laughs> to fucking log cabins? You know, or, what I mean? you know, or we're entrepreneurs. Why can't we, you know, get a shine on, you know, CNBC Prime? You know, yeah. where's our the profit? Or, you know, there, there, are many, there are many facets to our experience that, you know, like Sean was saying, they want the loud, the noisies, the, what's going to get the ratings, what's safe, what's going to get the ratings. And but it's all, unfortunately, you know, make, makes us look really bad. Yeah. yeah and like, it's a perpetual cycle, right? Because just like Sean says, that's well, this is what our audience wants. So we're feeding the beast. Right. So if it gets numbers, well, that equals ad dollars, that equals revenue. So therefore, we must make more trash. And we all know there's certain networks that, you know, if if a gunfight doesn't take place every act break, you know, they, their numbers don't tick up. And and so it perpetuates itself. And I and I want to talk about that. Like, I want to talk about the content that we're making and while it can be entertaining, right, white people, white women fighting can also be entertaining. Is it just perpetuating this cycle and how do we get out of that cycle? And should we? I think it's I think society views it through difference, right? You know, in, you know, Newport Beach yelling, it's like, oh, she's really mad. But if it's, you know, <laughs> if, if it's Keisha in Chicago, oh, that's an angry black woman. She's real mad. You know yeah. what I mean? It's, it's a very different scale that things are that are viewed upon. So, I mean, I think. Again, we have a responsibility when we put these programs out that we're putting things in context and then we're showing, you know, reactions to things or what leads up to something. And it's not just like a quick cut to, oh, she went from zero to 100 and here's why. You know, it, there's not, there just doesn't seem to be the same cultural sensitivity to people's reaction to things, why they may be conditioned to react a certain kind of way, what the circumstances that were surrounding that or what led up to it. Those things aren't really shown. It's like you cut to things in such a, a short way that there's no explanation given and there is no real qualification mm -hmm. as to why people uh, may be reacting or participating in an argument or what have you, because that's just what's expected. They're really, I've seen cuts where like, oh, you don't need to explain it. They're just mad. You know, or that's what they think this person is going to do. There's no reason for it to be like, oh, well, this person said this or, you know, they were upset because, you know, when they were eight, something happened in their family. You never give that backstory. It's just like, oh, well, Anthony just went in there and punched him because that's what black men do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. You know? yeah. And I don't think that anyone is asking for, um, you know, to just make shows about, you um, the Michelle Obamas of the world and that there's no space for Cardi B. Like, I don't think that anyone is arguing that. I think that no. what we are saying is that a lot of the industry is imparting a value system on our worth and they are dictating that and they are not allowing the full spectrum of what it is to be a human being. Just a human being is not being shown. And it's specifically because um, someone is a person of color, right? It is to show, um, it was like, what if you only showed like RuPaul's Drag Race and nothing else, right? That is not, that does not articulate the full queer experience. Like if you just any, if you take anything and you throw it inside um, a box and then expect it to grow or expect it to be viewed anyway, like it's just not smart, right? Like so much of the television and films that we're seeing even regarding women is showing like the full complexity of what it is to be a woman. Everyone should have that grace. You know, I think also... 
this is this time. I think also what we're looking for is we're looking for volume and we're looking for balance. One of the things that we had the opportunity to do on TV One, and I would always say this to my my um, different uh, EICs and, and 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 development people that listen, you know, we have to get the, we have to do the thing that's going to get the number right. So let's think about TV One, or let's think about in the, I don't want to call out TV One. Let's think about any black network that programs more than one show or any network that programs more than one show that reflects the African American experience. Let's think about it as a plate of soul food, right? You have your mac and cheese. That's going to be your loudest, noisiest, most delicious thing, right? So you're going to have to give people that. And that may be a show that, you know, people act a certain way that may be more akin to what we're accustomed to seeing as it relates to AA programming, but also balance it out, right? So give them what they want and supplement it with what they need. So your other shows may become your vegetables or your your protein, but you have a balance. And so if you see one thing happening in one hour, balance it out with something else happening more, maybe more positive, more, you know, a little less of that in the next hour. And it would be great to, it would be great for all of us if we, if there were networks that did multiple hours of programming where we could have that experience where, you know, just like anything else, you know, you can have on a general market, a general interest network, you can have one show where there's a, you know, a a drunken, rogue, cussing, drugging cop, but the next show is a happy family. So, but when you look at certain networks, specifically networks like Bravo, where you know you'll have multiple housewife seasons, or or you'll have multiple um, chapters of a of a particular brand, but you'll have that one that's re- re- reflects a one or two that reflects the AA experience, and it's completely out of pocket, right? Mm-hmm. So you'll have all of these different shows that reflect, you know whatever it is their brand is, but when it gets to the AA experience, it's over the top, it's loud, it's messy, and there's nothing there to balance it out. So mm-hmm. my hope and my wish is that we can get more volume and more balance. I think, uh, this is Anthony, I think also one of the things that, you know, I know we're talking about content and how content needs to change, but I also think the the mentality and the the thought process of production companies need to change as well outside of content. Um, I think that Brie and I have had this conversation many times where, um, you know, there, there are, there, in, in the reality world, right, there are a very few limited number of African-American either executives, showrunners. I mean, we all pretty much know each other, right, uh, to, to some degree. And I feel like a lot of times we, some sometimes get pigeonholed into a oh it's it, we have a new urban television show we have a new african american television show let me call the black showrunner but there's a show called lizard lick that i can easily do but you're never going to call me for that you know I, I i've seen it happen myself within a company where i was on a black show the show stopped there was another show and they were like oh we'll call you and they didn't call me until the black show came back up again not saying i couldn't do any other show but it was, it's, it's to the point of like, okay, well, we have this show X, Y, and Z. Let's reach out to this person X, Y, and Z. Instead of who do we have across the board for all of our shows? Um, and I think that that philosophy or that, that culture, so to speak, has to change within production companies. Completely agree. Sean, have you had that experience as well? Yeah, I mean, I've had... I've had my share of shows across the board. So I, I mean, I've, I've been lucky, but I, I definitely do see it like, Oh, well, that's not a fit, you know, or that might not be their skill set is really sort of what they try to, <laughs> to, to express. But at the end of the day, if you can execute a series and you can bring it home on for any network, 
you could do Lizard Lake TV or you could do, you know, Housewives of Sacramento. It's, mm-hmm. it's possible. I just don't think that people think in those terms because it's like, oh, well, these faces need to match this. Yeah. Well, African-American and people of color, uh, you know, showrunners, producers, directors, et cetera, have the skill set that transits across the board. Whether or not the company is comfortable putting you in that scenario because they don't think it'll be a fit is another conversation. And I think that's where we have the issue is that we don't have those conversations. Yeah, and I think your point, Anthony, is correct that it has to come from the companies and has to come from the top. When Bree and I were texting before we did this, I told her that my one of my bosses when I was at Oxygen back in the day was Cheryl Mills, who was a lawyer in the Clinton White House, went on to become Hillary's chief of staff, black woman. That was in 2000. So I'd already been at VH1. I'd already been around the block a bit. And I showed her my interview list for our first, we did like documentary shows and I showed her the list. It was Diane Sawyer and Leslie Stahl, I think was our first program. And she looked at the list and she said, there's not a single black person on this list. And it hadn't even occurred to me, right? Like that wasn't even, I may have thought, is there women versus men that way? But I didn't think that way. And thank God I had her early ish on in my career to point that out because I never thought about anything that I cast the same way after that. But without her, I wouldn't have thought it that way. And let me tell you, if everyone else had been white, we probably wouldn't have been occurred to us. Two things. One, I think that um, it's important to have um, the Cheryl Mills of the world who are able to point that out. And I think that um, it totally makes sense that you wouldn't think like you wouldn't think about it, because I think that what has what happened, I think, after Martin Luther King era is, you know, like um, all of this generation of uh, white culture was raised to not see color, um, right? Is that you are conditioned to believe that it is impolite or it is not nice to bring up race, but then you, what it is is that you just don't see, you're unable to like truly be honest about what is before you. And so then it becomes about being rude for pointing out someone's color when you, it's clear that you know what I mean? Like it exists because it's it's absent, right? And so I think for production companies to find this challenge of pigeonholing showrunners and to um, not be able to find the right, and I'm putting in air quotes, fit, is to ask themselves if they want to be pigeonholed as a production company. Do they only want to be known for one type of content? Do they only want to be known for making one kind of thing? And in the same way that they want to be allowed to make content that is different and varied, and they believe that they can accomplish many different things with the right team, so should it be for the same for the people that you're hiring when it comes to people of color. That's a great this point. Real quick, and Anthony can attest this too, because I think, you know, we've always tried to assemble the most diverse teams on our shows, even if that's not necessarily the representation within the production company, so that you have every representation in there so that you can make the best picture, right? So it's like you have to have all those things. So I think it falls on us is, you know, as people of color, as showrunners, within production companies or working for networks directly that, you know, if we don't see that change, we at the very least bring that in for ourselves. And I, I've had shows that, you know, you come in on a second season, you come in on a third season, and they're like, thank you. This is what we needed because we needed our voices represented. We needed to see people that look like us to make us feel comfortable. So I think we have that onus too, to really make sure that we're reinforcing those requests when we have the power to be able to do that. And I like the fact that we can 
raise our voices and make sure that that is something as a key point in hiring. Like I will say, like I would, I need to hire my own crew. Like I won't take a show unless I have a say in who's coming. You're like, you're not going to roll over, you know, anybody from the show without me knowing who they are, where they came from, what their situations have been on other shows, et cetera, because I need to know that that's going to be a, a good fit for everybody, you mm-hmm. know, and, th- and that talent's going to feel good. The crew's going to feel good. Um, I think it's for the, the production company also to get the best result, you know, because I think that everyone needs to feel like they're heard and that they're seen. And a lot of times that just isn't the case. Yeah. And I think the reverse of this, which is something we have to talk about, which is the way that the networks are set up and the way that there's, I'm putting in air quotes, black networks, and then there's co-viewing networks, I guess you could say. And then there's a lot of white networks. I mean, there is a huge handful of networks that say they want diversity And then they don't buy any diversity. And if they do, it's a huge outlier. And I've seen this now for over 10 years. They have convinced themselves to our earlier conversation that this is not what their viewers want to see. And we all know who there's a few in particular that say, well, we want to do black shows. Our viewers just don't like them. Well, we can't find black talent. Right. (laughs) I mean, do you know how many black shows I've pitched? And I know of an example. I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, but they did order a pilot. It's great talent. And the and it rated, it aired. And the feedback was, it's too urban. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Stop whistles. Yeah. <laughs> and then silence. <laughs> no, I mean, it, you know, it is Anthony. It, 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 unfortunately, that's the sad reality, you know? And I feel like, I think that we've somewhat all heard a story like that or something similar to like that in our different areas of production, Um, you know. uh, I definitely came up in an era where, and I say this this to a lot of the young people that I work with nowadays, I came up in an era where, again, there wasn't a huge market for African-American content, right? And for me being a young black male that was trying to break into production, or break into that world world of film and television, it was a battle, <laughs> you know? It was a battle. It was a battle to achieve certain positions. I literally have had people tell me that they didn't think, and Brie can attest to this, she knows exactly what I'm talking about, they didn't think that I was ready to be X, Y, and Z because I was better getting logistics for them, or I was better looking for locations, which was not the case, but and everyone around me knew it, but the company felt that standpoint. So, like, I've... I I tell people all the time where I say, you know, there is a, especially, and I've seen this, and I don't know, Sean or Tony or or Bree, if you've seen this, I've seen this with the younger generation coming into production, especially when working on an African-American show, there is a comfortability. There is a feeling of, well, I'm around, I'm around my people, so I'm right. gonna just relax a little bit. I'm not gonna have to work as hard as, it's right. the truth, I'm not gonna have to work as hard as you may have worked to get to that point. And I always tell right. people that you're only as good as your last job. So like, right. th- this is not the time to get comfortable. And this is not the time to be like, I'm around my people. Look, let me tell you, I'll tell everybody on this. Sean Rankin, I give him all props. I would not be where I am if it wasn't for that man right there. 
right? And I, there are specific conversations that I remember when I was a young producer and I felt like I knew what I was doing with Sean, pulled me to the side and was like, you don't. <laughs> you need to X, Y, and Z. And I needed that. And I needed that. If it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be here. So, like, I, I feel like, I don't even know where I was going with this, but I feel like there is, there is sometimes within the younger generation, we, feel, we get very complacent, and that, that mentality needs to change as well. What I, I, what I, go ahead, Sean. I'm sorry. Well, hey, thank you. That's, that's, that's very kind of you, Anthony. But it's, it's been a pleasure to watch your star rise. You know, you've been a stellar producer since day one, so it's just really good to see where you are right now. Um, that being said, I mean, I, I fully agree with you. I think that this younger generation, and this is across the board, I feel like they do need to step up the game a little bit because it's not as easy as they think it is. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, we all realize that eyes are on us because a lot of times we are the only ones in the room. And so our behavior, our, our execution is always under the microscope. And so I think that we should be mindful of that going into situations as well. You have to be. It's like my dad always used to say when I was little, it's like, you have to get, you have to be twice as good to get half of what they got, yeah. you know? And so that, that always sticks with me, always. And you can't forget it. Like, this is not going to change overnight. And so I think for us to continue to make headway, we still have to hunker down, put the shoulder the, to the wheel and keep going. You know, it, it's very important that the younger generation understands that and that that message doesn't get lost. And I think that's our responsibility as sort of the mentors in this, in this group, that we have to continue to, to reinforce that message too, because that's the only way that workforce is going to continue to grow and get exponentially larger and be a force to be reckoned with. We have to cultivate from within. One of the things that I've experienced with the younger generation, not only to Anthony's point and Sean's point of that, you know, we don't have to work as hard or we're, we're comfortable or whatever. I've experienced, and I'm sure you guys as well, they want everything right away. They'll yes. work on a show for one <laughs> yes. season and the next season they're like, okay, am I, there'll be a PA and they're like, okay, yes. when am I a showrunner? I'm like, you, you know, and you can't, you can't draw, you can't draw their focus to the, to the amount, the quality and how much work they really have to do in order to get to that next level. They're in this, you know, this they, they've grown up in this world where everything is immediate and they somehow seem to process, you're asking them to wait, to grow, to learn, to, to watch as taking something away from them or deliberately trying to hold them down or hold them back. When you know and I know that what you take the time to observe and to learn during this period of your career is going to be unbelievably beneficial beneficial to you five years down the road. But it can just be so challenging because they're like, nope, I'm ready and no. That's and I don't know if you guys have experienced that, but I certainly have. Oh. Yeah, I think it's too far. I think that um, there's a responsibility on all workers and, and this is not um, preserved for anyone that's a person of color, but just like all of these young kids like wanting to be a showrunner after um, PAing for two weeks, um, for them to truly understand that they must work to get where they are. I think that, um, I have, there's an asterisk next to it because I do believe that like, as I came up in the industry, I would be working for women that wanted you to pay the same taxes they did. And I, that's what I don't necessarily prescribe to. Right. So like mm -hmm. when I grew up into the, when I was growing up in this industry, I would get paid $150 a day 
to PA with no overtime working seven days a week, but only getting paid for five, right? And so the industry has changed a great deal and that's no longer legal to do that. And I agree, right? I don't, I don't put that tax on them and say, in order for you to be great, you must work 20 hours a day with no sleep and risk your safety and things like that, right? But I do believe that you have to have a work ethic and you have to work hard and you need to understand and contextualize what's happening around you and be more than just someone that hands out a call sheet, right? Contextualize the work and what it is you're trying to do and be effective and, um, you know, work smarter, not harder, and don't bring me problems, bring solutions and all the little, you know, things that we learn as you grow up about like being helpful. Like I think PAs are the most helpful people on set. They, they make a day go smoother, right? But if you don't understand your, your value, if you put just in front of your title, like I'm just a PA, I'm just a whatever, then people don't want to help you as much, right? So there's that part of it. And then there's like the industry part of it where I've noticed that black women stay in their positions way longer than their white counterparts, right? So then I will see someone who has mastered the art of being an associate producer, and then it takes her forever to be promoted to producer because she has been tasked with doing all of the dirty work. She doesn't speak up, doesn't understand her inherent value, or he doesn't understand their inherent value. And then they they come from the mindset of like, I'm just being the beer. I like with like young folks, specifically people of color, like you can't just be like grateful to be in the room, right? There's a way to, to show that gratefulness, but also under commanding what it is that you know and asking for what it is that you want. And so I think that the production companies and producers have to do a good job about truly pushing people up and asking themselves, like, why is it that producer, that black producer was producing has been producing for 10 years. It's not like, why have you been producing for 10 years? So what's wrong with you? But it's because they have not um, been allowed to grow. They have not been allowed to move in the direction of a showrunner, right? So now you have all of these networks that are trying to check all these boxes when it comes to diversity, which I am like, it is not about diversity. It is about inclusion and belonging, right? And then when your target is inclusion and belonging, the diversity comes. And now they're looking for all of these showrunners to have all these amazing credits, but they've never given anyone a chance. So now there's a pool of very talented people, right, who could completely crush a show, who can do extremely well, but now they're being visible and they're being visible because of their color and because of guilt. And I'm like, no, like you have to... Um, allow for people to grow and give them the support so you can stop feeling guilty about not hiring them. You know, it's interesting because Sean sounds like you were kind of a mentor to Anthony and someone who helped bring him up. And that's a perfect example, right? Is that we need, it's like for, you know, as a woman, I've always had female mentors. It's it's just a bond that we have. And I think that we feel a responsibility to pick up other women. I, I've been a mentor to to men as well, but it's it's a little bit more rare. So I think what you're saying is there's a real opportunity for mentorship. But the problem is, is that because we're not seeing black people in the highest levels, typically we're losing that. And therefore it's like, you know, all the white comedians that hire all their friends to be in all their movies, like the Adam Sandler's and the Judd Apatow's of the world, they all protect each other and they all help each other. And frankly, most of them wouldn't have a career without each other. So I think you're right. I think it's again, starts from the top, but I want to go back to the network question again. Because I think that not just in terms of the content that we see, but in terms of executives, I think there's a real dearth of 
people of color at the networks as well, especially ones in powerful positions. I mean, Tony, you were in a bit of a different situation because you were at TV One, which was designed to be a black network. But I think when we look across the board, at least on the cable landscape and even the streaming, I guess, I don't know. I'm not seeing a lot. What's your guys' take? Well, it's interesting because this goes back to what Bree said at the beginning of our conversation. I have experienced, and not to call anyone out, that when certain certain people, Black executives, do get to that higher up, that upper echelon, and they get into those positions, and it takes a lot to get there, right? And unless you're in an environment where you feel that you can fully be yourself and represent a lot of those people, you know what? They take the salary, they take the perks, and they lay in the cut. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's not to call anyone out, but, you know, that's, mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to rock the boat. You know, they're just not going to say, OK, now that I'm here, you know, <laughs> let's let's bust this thing wide open and, you know, let's make some some real change. There are plenty of people that either are aren't given that opportunity or are given the opportunity. And some of them may choose to fully embrace it or some of them, like I said, just may opt to just, you know, not rock the boat. And that mm-hmm. that part is unfortunate. Tony, do you think they can though? Because like the one thing that I will say, and y- you guys can tell me whether or not you can agree, is that I, what I realized as I um, have been like moving through the industry is that like if a white colleague has someone that they say is great and they recommend them, it is never questioned if they recommend an- another colleague that is white. But when you are black in the industry, I feel like I've always been forever and now I don't give a shit, right? <laughs> like if they're good, they're good and they happen to be a person of color and they happen to be a person of color. To be apprehensive to only push forward people of color because of the way it would be viewed, right? If you're only recommended people of color. And that's not something that white people are ever taxed with, right? So like when you're black, you're like, oh, I know someone that's really good. I don't know if you will hire another one. Like that's like a real, you know what I mean? Versus like if white people are like, oh, I have so and so, and they're good and they're just good and it's never questioned. Where we always had to filter, or for a long time had to filter our um, wanting to be inclusive and to bring a friend on because of the way that it would be viewed, right? But I think we we end up being cautious across the board. We end up being cautious about recommendations. We end up being cautious in that way about uh, making suggestions about the type of content that we create. We end up being cautious about pushing back on on when things are perceived, uh, how how things could po- possibly be perceived. We end up silent some people, and you know, because of those reasons, Brie, just kind of mute their voices, you know, and and it's unfortunate. I think that they, you know, it's it's a very tricky situation because you know I've been in, I've ha- had black colleagues that have been have told me that you know they would go to meetings and they would speak out and and they would be that person that would challenge the environment and then they said that they noticed that they just you know they wouldn't be invited to the meetings anymore <laughs> you know they Here wouldn't <laughs> you know and so it, it 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 can be it can be tricky but having said all of that there is absolutely no reason for us not to try not to continue to push forward, not to continue to advocate for ourselves and do whatever we have to do to our individual geniuses accepted, celebrated, and expressed. I think, um, this is Anthony, just, I I think also too, you know, we are in this um, space of time where diversity, inclusion, those are two words that you hear often, right? Diversity, diversity, diversity. My thing is, and I've heard people say, oh, well, I'm looking for X, Y, and Z. It's a person of color because we, you know, the, 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 we're looking for to fill the diversity of the 
for that show, right? Or whatever the case may be. My question is, and what, and, and what I would love to have happen is, it not be uh, it not be something we're filling for the time because we're filling the bracket of okay, well we have to have people of minorities or we have to have people of color or we have to have um, the certain amount of we need women on here. Like I I don't want it to be something where we are looking to fill a quota um, or looking to fill a spot because that's not real change. That's not change. You're just you're you're filling the spot that's needed for that company. It has to be beyond what is, oh, we're filling a diversity quota. It has to, the conversation has to be, do we feel these people are right for the job? Do we feel that they are skilled enough? Do we feel that they are smart? Whatever the case may be, whatever the criteria is that goes into hiring, it needs to be that and not the, oh, but we have to fill the, the, the three spots that we have available with black people, or we have to fill them with a woman, or we have to fill them with a minority. Like I, I, I want that to happen, but I want the conversation to go beyond that because then it just feels to me that you're not really doing that because of the change you want to make. You're doing it because you, it's the quota you need to fill for your company. And Anthony, I totally, this is Tony, I totally hear you there. And I think what sometimes what's en- what ends up happening is that when you level the playing field in that way, you're saying don't choose to fill a quota, just choose the, the best person. I think in, in an interesting way, some of your white counterparts, it brings up all different types of insecurities. Mm-hmm. It brings up all different types of, okay, if you're, if, if, if I'm saying out the gate that you are equal to me, that we are all gonna be judged on our own merits, what we're, what we're able to do, what we're able to create, folks get scared. Yeah. Folks really, really get scared because it's like, okay, it's, it's one thing, like I can, you know, I can accept this if you're in the special class and I have to do it. But if you're saying that we're all equal here, and you're equal to me and you're just as talented, you're just as educated, you're just as whatever, you'll be surprised at what rises up out of that. Sure. And that can present a whole different, you know, kettle of fish. <laughs> yeah, and I also want to add in, just from my own experience, let's say we're looking for an EP for a show and you go to the agencies and you do the call, you know, who do you have? I would say there's one black applicant for every 20 they send over, if that. So there is no real level playing field because you don't even have a pool that's equal or even close to equal to even be evaluate, be able to evaluate people based on the best candidate. You know, I'm not even getting anybody to look at. So I think that's a huge part of the problem in the first place. Don't bring someone because we're filling a quota. Bring someone because we, we need a good person. Right. And, and then just just changing the way you approach the hire, changing the way you, you know, even if you have to, you know, uh, scout for these people in certain areas or, or within certain types of organizations, when you bring them in, you know, kind of don't put that that little scarlet letter, so to speak, on them, you know, present them as if they're no different than anyone else. This is not our diversity hire. This is the hire of a good a good EP, a, a, a great executive. You know, that's, you can, even if you have to bring, you have to kind of go out of your way to find them. Once you bring them in, don't dress them up differently. Right. You know, and that's, and that, that, that's the that issue. I don't think for. they're being brought in. I had a thought recently because a lot of people are reaching out to me um, because of Hugh and because I have like this organization with over like 11,000 people of color who are in the entertainment industry um, who are reaching out to me like, 
how can I help? What can I do? Can you send me, like they're trying to set it up. And I thought to myself, oh, you know what would be interesting is if every network put an inclusion rider into the PSA, it would push for networks. It would push for production companies to make sure that their crews were diverse and inclusive. And I think on the production uh, company standpoint, because um, it is a lot of production companies, they operate like the wild, wild west, right? There was no human resources. And if production companies um, said, okay, we want to get serious about diversity and inclusion, so we're going to hire a human resources person who specializes in DNI, that you're not just like bringing um, people of color into a space or check the box of any marginalized group, but you're also having someone who can hold you accountable, accountable for microaggressions or the playing field not being level, so to speak. And so if production companies can take and bring in a human resources person who specializes in DNI, where that where you can have people who have agency within a production company where they can vocally speak out against things that are happening and address some of the things that are happening inside the workplace. And then networks, um, create an inclusion writer in the PSA which says, you want this project? I don't care if it's about log cabins, like this crew needs to be diverse. I think that that is a way to shift change. And then as per, if networks would take, let's say you wanna hire a showrunner for a, a shiny floor series, and there are not that many people of color who are shiny floor showrunners, right? But there are good seconds that are um, shiny floor, um, uh, shiny for producers, right? And they've been relegated to the second position to the showrunner who has been traditionally white. I don't want to take the food out of mouths of any white colleagues that have worked their asses off in this field, but I do want to level the playing field. So allow those people to be consultants on those projects, bring that second up to the showrunner and support their team and make sure the team, all of the producers, all the APs are well-versed in that thing and in that genre. And then you can create meaningful change, right? You have these producers that have this wealth of knowledge and experience and they are able to meaningfully consult and uplift that person where they don't feel tokenized. They truly have authority over the show. The network is invested in who the consultant is. The production company is invested in who the consultant is. And then the next time you're asking for a showrunner with X amount of experience, they have it because they've been given a true chance to do it. Okay. So we're kind of wrapping up now. What do you want? I know what we want to talk about sort of what are the next steps and moving forward. And I think Brie, you just spoke to some of it. Anything else that you guys want to make sure you get off your chest or talk about before I kind of go the, with the, where do we go from here? Um, and I, 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 one thing I definitely would love to have happen, and you know, I've heard this from numerous productions and stuff that is, you know, obviously production and the entertainment world is coming back alive um, past this pandemic and past what's going on with the protests. I do want us to recognize and 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 realize what's happening in the time we're living in, right? And not, and I, I say that to say, not do. Like I've had this conversation on just a show that I'm on right now. And it's like, how much do we include COVID? How much do we include protests? People really don't want to see that. No, it's not a matter of people want to say it's the light. We're living in this. <laughs> you know, if we are talking about we are reality television makers and, and, and docuseries makers, I am. The story is that COVID-19 is happening. The story is that America is in a point of change and at a crossroads. I should be able to tell that story through whatever characters I'm filming because they are living it just like I'm living it. And I understand that networks sometimes don't want to put that out there because their viewers don't want to be reminded of it every day, but then that's that's filming a false reality and that's not what I want to do. 
<laughs> you know, and I think that we, I think that there's something about embracing the times that we're in and not trying to shield people from the times that we're in to gloss over and give them something shiny to look at other than the change that's happening within this country. There's, well, first of all, Anthony, to your point, listen, I think I was watching Billions last night and, and COVID was re- referenced. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, we should, we certainly should. The thing that I want to, to say, which is not to, to say anything about what any of us have had and will accomplish in the reality space, but I really hope that talented folks like us that are on this, this episode can move into varied at different types of storytelling because I think that maybe in scripted or, or hybrid or something, we have an opportunity to craft the stories the way we want to show them, right? And the way we want to tell them and the way we want to express uh, this this experience that is uniquely the African-American experience. And it could be, you know, not, there's nothing wrong with reality. There's nothing wrong with our reality shows, but I see us just just the humanity of who we are more in the scripted environment. So maybe what I would not, it's, it's rare that it happens or to see people that are in reality showrunners or reality producers be given an opportunity to move into a new arena, into scripted, so that we can take everything that we've learned and everything that, that we've uh, experienced and put that into a different type of storytelling that may land in a different way that would help push forward this experience that we're having as African-Americans in a new and a entertaining and possibly a more accepting way. Does that make sense? That makes complete sense. Absolutely. Makes complete sense. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I mean, look at Insecure. That's just such a perfect example. She just, she went out and got it and it's an incredible show. Yeah. So Sean, anything that you want to say in closing? You know, I'm just I'm just happy that we're having these conversations in general because I feel like there is so much work that we have to do, and I feel like just the the idea that we are having conversations within an industry that has been pretty insular for such a long time, you know, as we can all attest to, it's it's not very often you see faces like ours in positions of you know power or control or you know show running executives, et cetera. I think us bring light to that and having an open forum discussion about that and noting what the general community feels has been a good thing. You know, I really do hope that networks and production companies and, you know, just people in general understand that this dialogue needs to continue and the faces do need to change. There does need to be mentorship programs and things like that to really sort of bring in that talent so that this can continue. Um, it's, we have such an interesting medium that we work with and we have the ability to influence a lot of people with the stories that we're, that we're able to tell. I would love to be able to tell all of those stories rather than just one side. And I would love to be able to, you know, include everyone so that people can understand what the experience is and maybe have a better understanding. You know, I had somebody that I went to college with that when I posted on Facebook the other day, sort of my list of experiences about how, you know, things have gone for the last, you know, 40 plus years. And, um, you know, he was like, I, I was your roommate for two years and I didn't know any of this, you know? And so it's because those things aren't necessarily always communicated, but when someone has the chance to hear it or see it or feel it, it's a totally different story for them to experience it. Right. So I feel like we have the ability to do that. And I would love the privilege to be able to do that because I think we could, we have the ability to make this a better world. If people could just absorb and understand and embrace 
what other people's existence are. Yeah, that so, was an incredible post, by the way, Sean, and I made it, you made it public so I could share it. So if you haven't seen it, check out my Facebook wall to to see that post. And, you know, I guess I want to end with one or two things from each of you that I'm putting it in quote, the white allies can do, right? To sort of feel like we're affecting change and feel like we're moving this conversation forward. I mean, I'm doing this because I feel like it's something I can do. I have this podcast. I have this voice to have these conversations. But I think, you know, other than protesting and donating, I I would love to know, like, what are the concrete things in our unscripted industry that people can do to shift things? I know that's kind of a summary of everything we've been talking about. But if there's just a few, and I know, Brie, your organization, Hugh, is talking about actionable plans, right? In this arena? Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, we're working towards like working with different production companies so we can introduce them to the members so they can um, realize how many of us are in the industry. I think that oftentimes people of color are um, peppered in and often treated like unicorns, (laughs) Um, where if you, you know, certainly I know a ton of black producers and a, a ton of Latin ex uh, Latin ex producers and a ton of, because I make it my business to make sure that my world is not closed off. And as you try to create um, a work world that is different from what you um, have seen before, I encourage everyone to, um, to really work on yourselves at home so that when you come to your workplace, um, you are, you understand how, um, different and as and as uh, you read white fragility and send me black heart emojis emojis telling me that you are with me um, <laughs> that you really take a chance take a uh, some time to enjoy um, black art that is joy like watch the inkwell watch you know the last dragon like stop like you know, like, don't let the help trend on Netflix and let, let that be like what it is you're trying to understand, like the pain of blackness. Like um, we are not um, a people who are just pain. Like we are so many things and we're so um, complicated and complex as complex as you. Right. And so I think that like, I want um, my wife, colleagues that are trying to figure this out um, because I understand that in the same way that um, blackness has, has been uh, put up in a corner and we've been essentially like mourning in a vacuum and a screen, screaming in a soundproof room that um, I understand that you have been educated to not hear us. I hear it. I understand it deeply. And I think that um, while it is not necessarily an, it is an excuse that we can still move forward and understand. And now that you know, let's not pretend that we don't know. And in the same way that you can care about using paper straws to protect some turtle so they don't have a straw in their nose is the same care that I need you to have for black bodies. Like, I just want you to give a shit in a way that is not centered in guilt or to believe that it is tragic. Um, I love being black, you know what I mean? And I think that I, it is my pride to be a black woman. I think that what the problem is that people have thought that race is a black problem and it's not a white problem. It is the problem of whiteness. And when you get down to that and you truly understand that, when you walk into these spaces where you see people are being marginalized and silenced and not being represented, 
you will know that you have truly done the work when you are viscerally offended. That's profound and really well said. Well, I, yeah, Tony, did you want to say something? Just, just uh, two things. One, um, as I walk into a white network tomorrow with an 846 tattooed on my neck <laughs> and wings under it, I hope that uh, um, there won't be judgment and I don't care if there is. Uh, but what I would want my white colleagues to, to think about and to bring forward is more than anything is to be present, be open-minded, and I, I'm, I'm reminded of one of the closing scenes, I think from the movie, um, A Time to Kill, where uh, Jake Bergance, the character of Matthew McConaughey, is explaining what happened to the daughter of who was attacked alongside the road. He's explaining it in excruciating detail. What happened to her, how she was attacked, how she was beaten, all the different things that happened to her. And as he's explaining it to this jury, and I think the jury is pretty much all white, and Samuel L. Jackson's character is on the, is, uh, is, is being tried, he, at the end of his explanation, he, he pauses and I think he's brought to tears and he says, now imagine that, she, that all these things that happened to this little girl, now imagine that she's white. What I want my white colleagues to imagine is every single thing that they want for themselves, the protection, the chances, the opportunities, the, um, the, to be given the, the benefit of the doubt, to be, given, to be given the, like I said, the opportunity to be the very best of who they are. I want them to want that for us. And the only way that you can want that for us is to be present, is to feel whatever comes up in you that is a part of your white fragility, sit with it, act upon it, be true to it, and then show up and do what's right. And you know what's right. Mm -hmm. Wow. I think we should end on that. That was amazing. Guys, thank you so much for doing this. I, I'm just so excited. Please, when I post it, share it with everybody. Let's just keep spreading this. I, I want to do more of this. So let's just have this be the beginning of the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank, thank you. you all. Happy to be with you guys. Yes. Pleasure.